The following podcast includes sensitive content about self-harm, suicide awareness, and prevention that might be disturbing for some people. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. Our topic today is something that I know makes me feel uncomfortable, and it probably makes many people uncomfortable. However, the experts and even our own governor in the state of Utah all say that's one reason why we need to talk about it. Hello, everyone. I'm Deborah Lindner with Utah Foster Care. Our subject today, suicide awareness and prevention. We will be looking at the risk factors, how self-care can help lessen those risks, and of course, resources to help you as parents. I'm joined by my co-host, Liz Rivera. If I'm fostering, especially a teen right now in my home, these resources are very important. Absolutely. I mean, we're concerned about teens in general and teens in care who are experiencing issues around grief and loss and uncertainty. We know that these are kids who are at increased risk of suicide and suicide ideation. And even our own governor recently shared his personal experience with suicidal ideation as a young man. So Liz, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest? Gladly. The trainers at Utah Foster Care saw her at the Critical Issues Conference last month. He raved about her. And so I immediately reached out to her thinking about the holidays. Once again, like Deborah said, it's not something that we like to connect to the holidays, and yet we know that this can be in a particularly vulnerable time. And so we're so grateful to have Taryn Hyatt with us today. She is the area director for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention in Utah and Nevada. Folks in our community have spoken very highly of her information and her passion about this subject. So welcome, Taryn. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you today. So I think we'll just start right off and talk about those risk factors. Absolutely. You know, and as parents, what we want to keep in mind with this discussion around suicide is we approach it the same way we would any other safety and health issue that we're concerned about with our young people. As you mentioned, Deb, you know, with a lot of people, this is maybe uncomfortable because it's it can be scary, especially when we don't know what to do or, or how do we stop it or, you know, how do we even talk about it in a healthy way? And so I just invite people that that this is the first step, right? We get educated, we learn about suicide, what it is, and then, yeah, what puts somebody at risk for it so that we can protect them the same way we would from other health conditions. And because it's a health issue, there are going to be risk factors, protective factors, and things that we can do. But when we look at risk, we want to start to, to kind of break it down into three categories. Risk factors usually start with people's health because it's a health condition. This can be physical health conditions people experience, mental health conditions. We know for youth, youth tend to experience rates of depression and anxiety, or at least that first onset when they turn around age 11. And and this is also a time for youth when they're experiencing, you know, chemical changes, hormones and and growth, right? And and then also trying to fit into their lives and and learn who they are and, and who their friend groups are. So having untreated mental health condition poses great risk for all of us, but especially our young people. We know that other risk factors can be things like trauma. 
families who've maybe experienced neglect, abuse, you know, when you're working with kids in the foster system. We know that a lot of these kids have experienced loss, rejection, you know, maybe that feeling of, of I don't know where I fit and belong. And those increase, you know, risk for suicide. And then some of the most important are when we start looking at a young person's environment. You know, what are they around? What have they been exposed to? Again, this could be traumatic things, violence in the home, not knowing where their next meal is going to come from, or if they're, they have a safe place to sleep at night. But it could also be if they're around, you know, bullying or environments that maybe don't make them feel safe. Maybe they express their gender or identity or, or have a sexual orientation that isn't accepted in their home or with their family. That could present risk for young people. So there's definitely a lot of them, and, and the list could go on and on. But again, because this is a health issue, we want to get educated about those risk factors so that if we see somebody who has them, we then can learn what to do to mitigate that. And everything you're talking about, Taryn, is what kids in foster care bring to the table. I mean, they have been dislocated from their families. They're uncertain. They may be moody, irritable. And, you know, like many foster parents know, they naturally may push you away at first. I guess what I'm hearing is the one thing foster parents should do is make them feel safe. Absolutely. You know, when we talk about protective factors, right? So these are the things that can keep us, you know, safe when we're, we're struggling. It's feeling connected to a family, feeling connected to a community and supported. It's encouraging and teaching our young people how to problem solve effective coping strategies. You know, we all know that we have different ways we cope and some of our coping strategies are healthy and some aren't, right? You know, I like to binge eat here and there and that's not a very healthy coping strategy, but you know, we all have those. And so when we promote ways that we can cope in a way that does increase our resilience and provides us opportunities to feel connected and supported, that helps keep young people safe. And another big protective factor that we need to identify for youth is access to mental health care. We're recognizing that we all have mental health. It is part of being human. So we need to access mental health care the same way we would physical health care. And mental health care looks different. It isn't always therapy and counseling. It could be, but it's also taking care of oneself, right? Having outlets to, again, get out some of those things that are stressful. Maybe it's doing art therapy, music therapy, just talking to somebody, drawing pictures, you know, going for a walk. Taking care of our mental health and making it a priority is the biggest protective factor for all of us as it relates to suicide. I think the way you presented it, it's something we can do something about. Suicides always seem like a mystery, you know, mm -hmm. and when you, when you break it down, like it's a health issue and that there are just like any other health issue, there are risk factors and protective factors that we can start to make a difference by addressing it at that level. Yeah. And I think especially for young people, this is important for all of us to understand is that suicide is really just a coping strategy. You know, suicide comes into a person's mind when they are in a situation that they feel trapped, they feel stuck, they don't know how to change it, but they want desperately to. So the body and the brain almost goes into this fight or flight mode where it just wants to escape. It wants to get away from the thing that is causing pain or hurt and, you know, escape that. And so if we understand that, that takes away some of the fear because then we come back to the person and say, okay, what has you thinking about suicide? You know, what's happening in your life that is causing this pain or this hurt? And we listen and we be present so that we can try to find alternative solutions, right? Alternative coping strategies, because we would never want someone to end their life because of a situation when we know we could help them to work through it or to get through it. But again, young people also 
also don't have that brain capacity yet, right? They're not operating off a fully formed, you know, prefrontal lobe. They're living off that instinctual part of their brain that's really just trying to survive. And one of the things I read is how to broach the conversation with them, how to approach it, and just letting them know that whatever they tell you, you are not going to judge them. Yeah, you know, and that's something that's hard for all of us as parents, you know, as our kids come home and they may say something to us and our first reaction may be, you know, ah, we're scared or we're, you know, angry because we don't, we don't know what to do. And so sometimes it's just taking a breath ourselves and going, okay, deep breath. Okay. I heard what you said. And yeah, don't rush in with this judgment of, well, why would you think of that? Or, you know, this isn't anything to, to kill yourself over or minimize it. Just let your child know whatever you need to tell me, I will hear it. Also, maybe give the caveat that maybe my first reaction might not be great. Give me a chance to have a different reaction. You know, give me a chance to try again if I do blow it. That's a great way of us even modeling for our young people how to, you know, own it when we do screw up and that it's okay that we're not always going to do things right. And this is how we can do it again and try again. But yeah, staying out of judgment and really just providing a place of care and concern is the best way we can hear, you know, those thoughts and feelings of suicide. One question I would have too is that in that setting, the child is coming or the youth is coming to us. How do we know when we should initiate a conversation? Those are going to be more of the warning signs, right? Because people do give. That's a myth that is out there that people who, you know, talk about suicide aren't serious. You know, they only do it for attention. The reality is they are doing it for attention. They want us to recognize they're not well because they want help. They want to stay alive. Most folks who are suicidal don't want to die. They just don't know how to live with what's happening. So when you start to notice things in their behavior, it's, a, it's an opportunity to just check in. Maybe it's sleeping too much, not sleeping at all. Maybe it's acting reckless, you know, taking unnecessary risks, not performing well in school, getting in fights. Sometimes it's the things they say. I can never do anything right. Gosh, I'm just such a burden to you. You'd be better off if I wasn't here. If their mood is really shifting, maybe it is extreme sadness or anger or apathy. You know, when you see something that just gives you that feeling that goes, gosh, something isn't right, ask. And the best way to ask is just to say, hey, you know, I noticed you were angry today. You kind of snapped at me. You don't normally do that. Sometimes when people are angry, it's because they're thinking about suicide. I wonder if that's true for you. There's a fear out there that if we ask, it gives people the idea. And we need to break that down right now. Research has continually shown that by asking somebody if they're thinking of suicide, it actually provides them the opportunity to say yes if they are and get help. We can't plant these ideas in people's heads if they're not, right? And so just asking and being willing to say, you know, hey, sometimes when people get in trouble, sometimes when people are adopted, sometimes when people, you know, their parents go to jail, they, they feel alone and they often think of killing themselves. Have you ever had those thoughts? You know, we just ask and provide a space for them to tell us yes or no. Once again, our guest today is Taryn Hyatt. She's the area director for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention in Utah and Nevada. Before we go further in our discussion, Taryn, tell us where people can go for help. So one of the best resources that we have right now that's available to anybody at any time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So that number can be reached at 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. That number is answered here in our state locally at the University of Utah, now known as Huntsman Mental Health Institute. 
So you will get somebody on the phone who is within our state, who can access, you know, where you're at, guide you to services and support and listen. Our crisis line is also staffed by licensed clinical social workers and mental health professionals. They also administer the Safe UT app. So if you have a kid that has a smartphone, or if you as a parent have a smartphone, you can download that app. Again, it's called Safe UT, and that app has a chat feature where you can chat live again with these crisis counselors. You could report a tip if you were worried about somebody. It was geared towards youth in schools so that, again, if a young person's friend, you know, makes a comment of, of either suicide risk or maybe something is happening at home that isn't safe, they can report anonymously and get their friend help and support without getting the friend to know that it was them or having them be angry but we want to be able to provide support for folks. So again, the National Lifeline is a great resource. 24 hours a day, you can reach that. And the Safe UT app, both of those are going to be answered from Huntsman Mental Health Institute here in Utah. Thank you very much for giving us that. The other thing we know is that another risk factor may be when someone they know has taken their own life, a, a fellow classmate. You know, that's where this whole fear of asking the question came in, because with young people, unfortunately, we experience something called contagion. Now, contagion is where suicide can become contagious, just like it sounds. Again, not for somebody who has never struggled. But if a young person has a classmate or a friend who, who maybe dies from suicide or attempts suicide, and then that young person is now dealing with the grief or the confusion and loss and starts to struggle they may see that as an option for themselves. And so we really want to be mindful when young people go through these traumatic events or have somebody that's died from suicide, attempted suicide, again, that we talk openly about it and say, hey, you know, if you ever have these thoughts, I need you to tell me. Again, not because you're bad or weak, but this is a health condition. And if you're having those thoughts, it means we need to get you extra support. So encouraging those conversations with our young people when they do experience the loss of a friend or an attempt by a friend. One concern we've had with children in care is that it's not unusual for them to have had a family member who has died by suicide. Once again, that, that idea of contagion, especially when it's in their own family. Yeah, because suicide runs in families. That's something we know is a health condition, right? There, there's a genetic component. And we know that people who've lost a family member are six to eight times more likely to consider suicide themselves. I'm somebody who lost my dad to suicide. I'd attempted suicide as a teenager. So we knew in our family, we had to have those conversations. I have two children, you know, that went through their teen years. Both of them experienced periods and moments of suicidal thinking. But because we had talked so openly about it as a family, they knew that they could come to me and say, mom, this is what my brain is thinking. This is where I'm at. And then we could get them the help and support that they needed. And so it is important to understand that if somebody has had that experience, suicide death is unique. It does require some nuanced, you know, grief supports that maybe we wouldn't see in other forms of death. And so it is important that we address that and again, provide spaces for people to talk openly about that experience. You have some fairly innovative prevention programs going on. And so even before parents might suspect there could be a reason to talk to their children, should they be talking to them about it and how? Oh my gosh, a thousand percent. There is nothing I kind of get on a soapbox about more, but let's not wait until our young people or even ourselves are in crisis before we talk about what to do when we're in crisis. There's a tremendous resource out there called a safety plan. 
most of us, when we grew up, had some kind of a plan in our home if there was an emergency, right? Like if there was a fire, if there was an earthquake, you know, we, we detailed out a plan for what we would do. That's what a safety plan is. It's, it basically helps your young person identify, okay, if something were to happen today that would cause me, you know, to be in a, a crisis state of mind, who could I call? Who could I tell? You know, what could I do to distract myself? What can I do to keep myself safe? And it takes you through these steps. If anyone were just to Google, you know, Stanley Brown Safety Plan, it would pull this resource up and you could go through this with your child. And I recommend people do it now. You know, start talking to your young kids about mental health. Most young kids, kids in elementary school, you know, they're experiencing these symptoms because mental health symptoms often manifest themselves physically. It's the nervous tummy. It's that, you know, diarrhea, if I have a test or if I have a conflict at school that I'm nervous about, that sometimes is, is anxiety manifesting itself. So when we talk to our young people about emotions and how they're feeling and, you know, help them be able to name them, help them to know that, okay, this is a feeling that will pass, you know, helping them understand that, that mental health is an important ingredient to listen to in themselves. We, we start that conversation early so that then if it does get to a place where they're really struggling, it's easy to have that conversation because we've already laid the framework. I mean, even if that child never has any kind of suicidal ideation, knowing about their own mental health and their physical reactions to emotions and that is only going to benefit them anyway. So it's, it's just good, a good thing all around. Absolutely. And the only other thing I just would add quick, you know, is we have seen attempts in our state as young as five. I was eight years old when I had my first suicide attempt. So we, we can't envision that this isn't happening. And again, a lot of the reason why me personally, my own attempt had to do with trauma, right? Sexual abuse and things that kids had experienced. So when you're working with families who are already bringing in a child who may have experienced this kind of trauma, it could already be present for them. They just maybe have never talked about it before. So it's okay just to sit your child down and say, you know what, sometimes when people go through hard things, they often think of killing themselves. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. And then if they do say, wow, thanks for telling me. And you know, when you ever feel that way, I, I need you to know that I want to help you and I will support you. And we're going to work through whatever it is to get you the help that you need. And so we reassure them right away that, that we want them here, that we need them here. And that if they've thought that before, it's okay but they need to continue to tell us the same way you would tell me if your tummy hurt, right? And you, you were puking in the night and you couldn't go to school, you know, treat it that same way with that same urgency. I, I need to know that so that we can keep you safe. I love that. As I went through the websites is that boys are more likely to attempt suicide and they are more often than not uh, likely to do it with a gun than girls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what we've seen historically is that boys often die more frequently from suicide than girls. Girls tend to attempt more often than boys. And boys have historically chosen more lethal means such as a firearm. And so there is so much need for us to have that discussion now. If you are a family that owns firearms, again, you get to own them. That's not what we're talking about, but we have to ensure that they're stored safely. And this means in a safe, without access, changing the combination frequently if you need to, putting a trigger lock on it. Because again, think of that teenage brain, right? If that teenager goes through, let's say a breakup, you know, we don't get the, the luxury of getting the notification, you know, two days before that, hey, your little child is going to have their heart broken in two days. You need to make sure your house is, you know, safety proof. And so if we practice safety in the beginning, 
we don't run the risk of something happening and then them having access to something that lethal. Now, a lot of people will say, but if you just lock up the gun, well, they'll find another way. And again, we know that not to be true. The brain is not problem solving at the point of crisis. And if they don't have access to the firearm, the likelihood of them looking for something and finding something else is greatly diminished. But even if they did, other methods are more easily able to rescue is is what I'm getting at. You know, the likelihood of survival is increased if they do choose another method. So storing our guns safely is such a huge priority and we really could limit the amount of suicide deaths we see. In our state of Utah, 86% of all gun deaths are suicide. That's huge. So just storing your firearms safely really mitigates that risk. I think that's one thing we don't talk a lot about when we talk about gun safety is the the risk of suicide. And I saw the other day on Instagram, I think it was the health department, the state health department has a rebate program right now for people who want to buy a gun safe. And I think it's up to $200 that they're offering. Yes, that is true. And so, I mean, that's been the beautiful part of our legislature these last few years. We've made sure that gun locks are available at every local library. And now, yes, they're doing a a rebate. So if you go and purchase a gun safe, you can get up to $200 back. And it is through the Department of Health. So yes, spread that message. Again, we just want to encourage people to store their firearms safely so that we can mitigate that risk for our young people. That is so fantastic to hear. As usual, we've just scratched the surface. So any final words you have for foster parents, especially to leave us with? Well, first, I would just say thank you so much for opening your hearts and your homes to young people who need to just be loved and and, and supported. And that's really the first step, you know, is creating that sense of connection, letting them know that you're there for them, that you support them, and that you're willing to get them help. Too many of us as parents have our own belief systems about suicide and mental health because we've grown up in a different world than we live in today. It, It needs to be treated just as seriously as any other physical condition. And there's a high likelihood your child that you're fostering could be already experiencing these thoughts. So just start by sitting them down and saying, hey, I just want to have a caring conversation with you because I love you and I'm concerned. And just wonder if you've ever had these thoughts before. And if you have, it's okay. And if you ever do have them, please come talk to me and tell me. And Liz, as far as training goes, we do offer some in-service training for suicide prevention, right? Yes. In fact, uh, one of Taryn's colleagues just recently did an in-service for Utah Foster Care. We try to regularly schedule these trainings for families because we know it is such a significant issue. And we encourage our foster families to talk to other foster parents about it. Again, if you're still a little uncomfortable approaching the subject with your child, ask another foster parent and you can connect with them through our cluster support groups. In addition, we want your thoughts, your comments, your feedback on this podcast. And if you're looking for resources right now to help you understand the issue of suicide awareness and prevention. You can download the Safe UT app to have the information at your fingertips. And we also have the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 800-273-TALK or 8255. As Taryn mentioned, that is answered locally right here in the state of Utah. So you will have someone locally who can help you either as a parent or as a young person who has some questions. 
We are going to list those phone numbers and resources on the webpage of our podcast to help you. I want to thank our guest, Taryn Hyatt, Area Director for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention in Utah and Nevada. I also want to thank my co-host, Liz Rivera, our producer, Marshall Shearer Davis, and of course, all of you listening out there. As Taryn mentioned, suicide is a health issue first and foremost. So treat it as such. Don't wait until you're in crisis, create a safety plan. And remember, maybe one of the most important things of all, help these children have a connection with the family. Because as Taryn mentioned, having a connection is part of that protective resource for a young person. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, so long, everybody. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.